The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Janie. Um, I'm one of the people on staff here, like Ryan and um, Chris and Kevin and Kelly. Is that all the staff people have been up here already? There's some other great staff people that want to meet you, too. There's Chris and Karen. We don't all have C names. Um, and Annika and Becky, somewhere. Um, all of us are excited to get to know you. That is why we work here at the Inn, um, so know that we love spending time with college students. That's why we're here, so um, we are excited to know you. And welcome to the September Inn. This is technically the last of the September Inns. Um, next week is the first Fall Inn, as you heard, and it is in September, but we don't call it a September Inn, just to confuse you. Um, but we are excited for you guys to be here next week for the first um, in of Fall Quarter. If you've been here the past few weeks on the September end, you know that we have been in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now that, um, the book of Ecclesiastes, people have some pretty strong opinions about it. It's kind of a polarizing book of the Bible. Some people love it because of how honest it is about how difficult and disappointing life is. And some people hate it because of, um, it's confusing, it's contradictory, it doesn't seem like it belongs in the Bible. Actually, when they were deciding back in the day what should go in the Bible, there were a lot of like priests in the first and second century who were like, eh, chuck it, throw it out, should not be in the Bible. And the Hebrew Bible too, there are a lot of rabbis that didn't think Ecclesiastes should be there. Um, so we wanted to dig in. What, what's this all about? It's, what's the big deal about Ecclesiastes? Um, so who wrote this crazy book? Nobody really knows, but the person who wrote it is called the sage, which sounds all mystical, um, or the teacher. And it's almost like we're reading someone's journal. That's really what Ecclesiastes seems like, someone's stream of consciousness. It is called one of the wisdom books. Other wisdom books are like Psalms and Proverbs. And that is not just a clever name, because it talks about wisdom. Last week, um, Ryan broke down for us what we could glean from Ecclesiastes about wisdom and how wisdom isn't useful in and of itself. We don't gain wisdom for the purpose of having wisdom. But wisdom is valuable in that the world that we live in, it's kind of gray. It's not black or white. Like our everyday lives are kind of gray and hard to figure out. And God's wisdom helps us kind of navigate our lives in that grayness. Um, so tonight, we're going to actually... Look at kind of the the full book of Ecclesiastes. We'll do the conclusion of chapters 11 and 12, see what what value they might have for us. Um, But you might be asking, you know, okay, so what? You know, what? why would I ever go to Ecclesiastes as a Christian? Well, it's funny that you should ask. I know you didn't ask, but let's pretend that you did. (laughs) Why would we go to Ecclesiastes? What I want to look at is actually to see how the teachings of Ecclesiastes really are similar and parallel to the teachings of Jesus. A lot of what we find in Ecclesiastes, we can find in the New Testament, which might be surprising for a lot of people, but they're all over the Gospels. These little nuggets from Ecclesiastes a couple weeks ago, I called them the bacon bits um, that we can find. The wisdom that Ecclesiastes has, it's all over in the New Testament. What Jesus talks about in the Gospels, what Paul writes to the letters, to the churches as they're getting started, um, 
We can, we can find those. And I truly believe that what seems like the musings of a clinically depressed, contradictory, confusing journal entry are actually really valuable and similar to what Jesus says as well. So we're going to take a look at that. But before we do that, um, I want to stop a minute and pray for our time. Holy God, we are so grateful for the fact that um, you give us a divine invitation into your presence and that you are here with us now, that you give our lives meaning, worth, value. God, I pray that now we would be made aware of um, your teaching, your word, your presence in our midst tonight, and may these words from your scriptures um, enlighten us, draw us closer to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, before we look at Ecclesiastes and New Testament, I want to kind of give us a conclusion. Look at the last couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes 11 and 12. And it has some more ruminations on life and death as well, which is kind of all over the book. Um, so we're going to look at what one of the things that he teaches, because what he teaches is for y'all, right? This is really particular for you guys. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 11, starting in verse 7. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your hearts give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart, and whatever your eyes see... But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles, troubles of your body. For youth and vigor are meaningless. All right, so that's you, young people. You're young. Be happy while you're young. By the way, it's meaningless. Again, we kind of have a contradiction here. Um, it's a theme that we get through the book of Ecclesiastes. Enjoy yourself, and you're going to be judged. And none of it means anything. Now, I think what, what, what the reader wants, what's the, what the writer, what the readers, what the writer wants to emphasize is the ideal of both eat, drink, and be merry because you're young, but also use the wisdom that you have because there's going to be consequences to the things you do. In other words, allow yourself joy, but there is so much in life that you can't control. Um, and since we can't control life If we let go of our tendency to try to control it, we can be freed to actually know joy. Now, sometimes I feel like this idea of joy becomes pressure, like responsibility. It's another thing that we have to control. Do you guys ever feel that way? Like, oh my gosh, I have to go out and have fun or experience joy. Maybe I'm the only one who feels that way, but sometimes experiencing joy feels like something we have to do. We have to go out and have fun. I always feel this when I look at Facebook, right? Like, oh my gosh, these people are having so much fun. I need to go outside and take jumping pictures. Clearly, I'm not having, there's not enough joy in my life. I've got to go outside and experience joy, which is the opposite of having fun, right? Because you you aren't supposed to control joy that we have. It always reminds me of um, the movie Groundhog Day. Have you guys seen Groundhog Day? Anybody or... Yeah, you've seen it. If you haven't, I don't know how you haven't, because I think for like four years straight, it was like 24-7 on TBS. It was always on TV. Um, Even though it's really old, whenever I think about having fun, I always think about Groundhog Day. So what happens in this movie, um, Bill Murray, his characters, I think his name is Phil, yeah. 
he experiences the same day over and over and over and over. And he's impressing this girl and having this amazing day. And it ends, and he wakes up the next day, and he's trying to, like, have that same amazing experience. And during that time that they're having this great, great experience together, she mentions how excited she is about having kids. Um, and so I want to show you a clip of what it looks like when you're trying to, um, really trying to control the joy that's happening. I love how he says, like, we're having so much fun, and he, like, makes a snowball, and he says it again. This is so fun. Have you guys ever had that experience where you're like, I need to have fun. I have to go do that. We try to control having fun, controlling every part of our lives. We have to go to amazing places and have awesome experiences. We need to make sure that we do that. But what I think this writer of Ecclesiastes is, is telling us, that finding joy, having fun, is something that you can't control. We actually have to let go of control in order to really experience joy. Now, on the flip side of that, He's also saying that, no, there's consequences to what you do. Use wisdom when you seek joy. Basically, don't be stupid. Experience joy isn't just about self-gratification, right? That would be meaningless, he would say. That would be exploitation of other people. But if we use the wisdom that God has given us, we can experience joy with healthy boundaries and um, can be edifying to us and other people. So the teacher especially wants you to know as a young person that you should be liberated from striving after trying to achieve and all of the things that we think we need to control in order to be an amazing person, but really doing that is just going to lead to discontentment later in life. Instead, we should actually try and grab onto the things that are about being young, having fun, experiencing joy, not worrying and having anxiety, but being free to hope. To truly know joy and to live a life filled with God. Now this, I think, is where the book of Ecclesiastes really kind of lines up with what we see in the New Testament. And that is, in order for us to know freedom in Jesus, we to know the joy of a life lived in God, we have to let go of control of every part of our lives. We see that in Ecclesiastes and in the New Testament. So... What I want to do is look at what are some of the things that we learned from Ecclesiastes, looking at it over these three weeks. So I have the big three, the big three lessons of Ecclesiastes. Um, so the first lesson, and I think these all line up in the New Testament, is meaninglessness. It's the first lesson, big Ecclesiastes three, meaninglessness. So the writer of Ecclesiastes starts the book off with a bang of a lesson, right? Chapter one, verse two, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, utterly meaningless. All right, great. Everything under the sun, everything in this world is meaningless. That is, until we bring God into everything we do. And he means everything. Eating, drinking, toil, labor, sadness, joy, celebration. Everything we do can have meaning if it includes God. He says in chapter 2, People can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This, too, I see is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Now, sometimes this is kind of confusing. Like, really? Eating and drinking? That can be meaningful? And this is how I think of it in my head. This is probably totally blasphemous. But have you ever eaten something so good that the only way that you can describe how good it is is by cussing? Right? Like, it's just, especially if you don't cuss very often. It could, like, last week, I had this nectarine that was just cussing amazing. 
I mean, it was awesome, right? And I'm not saying, like, experiencing joy um, is the same as cussing with God. Like, my point is that, like, there's no way to explain it. You have an experience that's just awesome. And I think when we experience things like that, it's like, yeah, God made that nectarine taste phenomenal. And that is how so many things in our life can be if we allow God um, to be a part of, of everything that we do. All the, everything that we do can have meaning. Not that we're necessarily going to cuss about it. But So how does this connect to the New Testament? Meaning, worth, value, none of that can be found in this world. All of those things are things of God. And the Apostle Paul emphasizes this throughout his letters um, to the churches that the first churches, he, to his letter to the Philippians, he writes this, and see how this is kind of like meaninglessness. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Paul's saying everything in this world is garbage compared to the meaning that we get the relationship with God, with Christ in our lives. Christ subverts, transforms everything to have meaning in our lives. And letting go of control, putting our faith in Christ, gives us hope for our future. Not worry and toil about a future and all the things I have to do in order to succeed, but hope for a future with God. It allows God to be a part of everything in our lives and gives us meaning. Now, this idea of meaningless is also um, a big part of the second big Ecclesiastes 3, and that is chasing idols. Um, Over and over again, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, this world is a factory of idols. And I'm not just talking about like the little stone or wood statues. But there are so many things that we elevate to the utmost importance in our lives that lead nowhere. Wealth, power, desire for admiration, a need to be noticed. These ideals we hold up as the most important things in this world, um, in our lives, that give us value. And in order to achieve these things, what do we have to do? We have to take control of our lives, right? That's what we have to do in order to get any of the things that we think are important. And these lead to something that's extremely relevant today in our culture that um, the teacher of Ecclesiastes talks about even over 2,000 years ago, and that's consumerism. How consumerism is about obtaining more and more. And not only things, but also just achievements. I need all of these things, but it only leads to emptiness, right? There's no satisfaction. Now, this is kind of a silly example, but a couple weeks ago, I was shopping, and I bought this shirt. It's like $7 on the clearance rack, you know, so I was proud of myself. Like, yeah, nice deal, Jane. So I got home. So it's a black shirt, long sleeves, white striped. And I look in my uh, closet, and I have a white shirt, long sleeves, black stripe, and another a white shirt, long sleeves, gray striped, a gray shirt, long sleeves, white stripe, a gray cardigan with white stripes, and a black turtleneck, a black sweater turtleneck with white stripes. I mean, oh my gosh, that's just ridiculous. And I don't even have that many clothes. (laughs) 
But I, I, that's a silly example, but it's a, it's a symptom of a bigger problem, right? That we have this insati- we have these insatiable appetites. That's just the way our culture works. We don't even think about it. And apparently I have an insatiable appetite for black and white stripes. I don't know why. I had a traumatic experience with the, with the zebra when I was a kid, apparently. I don't know where that comes from. But that's just kind of a, a snapshot of just the way that we live, right? Consumerism is how our, what our lives are defined by. But it leads to emptiness, it leads to worry and anxiety that there's not going to be enough. And not only that there's not going to be enough, but that we aren't going to be enough. I'm not going to be the perfect person, I'm not going to be the perfect Christian. But what Ecclesiastes calls us to is simplicity in life. Life isn't about gaining stuff. Life is a gift. Life is a gift of receiving and giving joy and knowing the hope of God. In chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes, the beginning, the teacher writes, Ship your... Ship? (laughs) Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes and eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. So ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you're going to receive a return. Give away from what you have. And what you need will come back to you. Now, this is the teachings of Jesus, right? It's, it's all over the New Testament, all over the Gospels. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Right? We're probably familiar with this passage if we know much scripture about what Jesus teaches, But um, I love how he points out the pagan world, this world runs after all of these things, runs after consumerism. And letting go of control allows us to let go of anxiety and worry and obsession with things that are not going to satisfy. Instead, we can experience the joy of the life of God. Now, finally, the most significant of the, the big Ecclesiastes 3 is death. The writer of Ecclesiastes talks a lot about death, um, kind of morbid. But basically he says, no matter what the course of your life takes in this world, no matter who you are, everyone comes to the same fate. We're all going to die. Chapter 9, he says, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes them all. The hearts of people Moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Really uplifting. I know, it's a joy. Sometimes to read Ecclesiastes, but his point is that um, we all have the same fate. And Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about um, the sun rises on the evil and the good, right? It's the same for everybody. And in James, this actually sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes, the writer of James says, Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. 
The word meaningless is vapor in Hebrew. And here James uses the same kind of idea. Like, it's meaningless. You, you can just vanish. So the future is unknown. It's beyond our control, even if you gain control of everything. Even if you had the most perfect life, you're wealthy, you had high social status, that you did the most amazing things in this world better than anybody else ever did, you're still going to die. You're, you still have the same fate as everyone else. That what's, that's what makes everything in this world so pointless. And that's why the writer of Ecclesiastes kind of goes on and on telling us meaninglessness and pointlessness because it all leads to death. Now what happens for the writer of Ecclesiastes is um, he accepted that death is the supreme surrender of control, right? Giving up control. And our acceptance of death, that's necessary too. As followers of Christ, we know we have to die in order to truly live. That's what Jesus teaches us. That's what Paul writes in his um, letters as well. In 1 Corinthians, um, Paul writes, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. All die, so that we can be made alive in Christ. New life can't exist without death. And death produces fullness of life. And Jesus talks about himself in John chapter 12. He says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Those who love their life will lose it, while those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Anyone knows knows the story of Jesus knows that Jesus is talking about himself in saying the kernel dies to produce much fruit. Jesus dies so that we can experience new life. Life full of meaning with God. Life full of hope that is not about chasing after idols. Life that is about excitement and joy of what the future might hold. From the beginning of Ecclesiastes, the teacher um, is acknowledges life without God is meaningless, it's pointless. And he realized that we need to surrender wealth, we need to surrender ambition, we need to surrender all of ourselves to take the first steps to really receiving and giving the joy that life has. And what we see in the Gospels in the New Testament is the same thing. Surrendering wealth and ambition so that we can receive and know the joy of life, but Jesus takes that a step further. Because not only when we give up control of our lives, not only do we receive joy, we also receive redemption. We receive reconciliation. We receive a new life in Jesus. Death doesn't have the last word. We are made a new creation. And that is meaningful. We have meaning. We have a reason to hope. Because hope isn't believing that everything's going to turn out perfectly. Hope is believing that no matter how things turn out, they're going to make sense. And God is going to be with us. I think the call of Ecclesiastes is the same as the gospel. Give up control of your life. We can open our fists of all that we hold on to so tightly, the things that we think are going to give us meaning and worth and value and love. But meaning and worth and value and love, those all come from a life that is lived open-handed, that is surrendered to Jesus. 
And my guess is most of us here would say, yeah, I have, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've died to self. But really, relinquishment is saying, I'm giving up everything. I'm giving up control of everything. That is what discipleship is. That is what it means to say, I am following after Jesus. To give up control. My guess is probably we all have things that we hold on to that say, that we say, well, I don't really want to give up all of these things because I'm not convinced that these things aren't going to make other people love me. I'm not convinced that these things aren't going to give me meaning at some point, so I don't really want God to have these yet. Maybe for you it's worry about the future or obsession with grades or being the perfect person, the perfect Christian, the perfect son or daughter. Maybe it's being physical in a romantic relationship or your lifestyle on the weekends. Or maybe it's keeping up appearances, making sure everybody knows you're okay. As we get ready to enter a new school year, this is your chance to examine what are the things that I am holding on to. What are the things that I do not want to give over to God? I don't want to surrender. And actually, the staff is going to hand out some pieces of paper um, and some pens right now. And we want to give you the opportunity to maybe name what it is that you're holding on to, that you don't want to give up control of. Um, And I'm not saying that once you write it down, praise Jesus, you're healed. But naming it is where transformation starts. And uh, after, we're, um, after I pray, the band's going to come up and they're going to play music for a little while. Um, and as they do that and as we're singing the next couple of worship songs, um, if you want to, you can come up to this box and let go of that thing that you're holding on to, that thing that... You don't want to give up. You don't want to surrender. Because God's transformation begins when we open up our hands and let God have all of us. Giving up control is how we can have meaning and worth and value and love in every part of our lives. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we thank you that you meet us where we are. That you are with us um, in the moments when we are holding tightly in our fists to things that we don't want to give over to you. And God, I pray that you would give us the desire to let go of the things that we want to control. To let go of the things that are getting in the way of letting you be a part of our entire lives. All that we are, all that we do, all that we say. God, it's to you we want to surrender. It's to you we want to give our lives. Help us out. Amen.